thinking of a retirement portfolio as a cow that has to last you full of retirement and you're taking milk out of it, you know, every year. How much milk can this cow give before it topples over and dies, you know? Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have Bill Bingen, who is the creator of The 4% Rule. Yep, that same 4% rule that we all drive towards blindly for our financial independence. And you get to hear from him, like some of the updates. Is it still The 4% Rule? How did he figure it out? And more. But first, let me check in with Cody and see what you're up to this weekend. Well, I had a pretty eventful week. I was actually in Fort Myers for most of the week and just kind of living it up on the beach. It was like 90 degrees every day. We didn't really get a drop of rain, maybe 30 minutes at most. Now, Lauren and I are fully moving into the lake house that if you're a longtime listener, pretty much every summer we have this little cottage on a lake really close by to the place we're living in now. We're getting everything moved over, which is basically just clothes, a few random things, pots and pans, but it's pretty much just fully furnished. So we're moving into that this week. We'll be there till the end of summer when it's a little too cold in Massachusetts because the place is not insulated. Justin, what is going on with you? Well, I did go back home to Mississippi. We talked about it a little bit last week where I said I might do some pizzas. I ended up doing a few. I ended up doing just enough to kind of get some practice in, get some gas money, but not overwhelm myself. So I made 13 pizzas. I sold 10 of them. Uh, The rest of them were one for my mom and then a couple for me and Leslie. I also went back home for my brother's wedding, which was great. But one unfortunate thing that happened was on the way back from Mississippi. So it's supposed to be an 11-hour drive. We make it up to Memphis. There's a bridge out, which I knew was out, but it was out when we came through. Should have added just a little bit of traffic on. Apparently, the, the local town decided to change the traffic pattern to make it better, and it made it terrible. So I went down a little side road as I was directed. We sat there for over an hour and a half without moving So we decided just to go back home to Mississippi, which is an hour and a half away, and spend the night, get a good night's sleep, and try again and go a different direction. So then we went the more straight south direction. It takes a little longer. It takes about 12 hours. But that was yesterday, sitting in the car for 12 hours. But that's enough about us, Cody. Let's take a moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote-unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So today on the show, we have Bill Benjamin, like you mentioned in the beginning, Justin. And it was such a treat to have someone who is literally a pioneer of this entire movement. We talked to him a little bit about like 
you know, what do you think about all these people now that call themselves the FIRE movement, kind of using something you created in your early years of research as a financial advisor as the cornerstone of their retirement strategy? And, you know, Bill's just a super humble guy. He's still working tirelessly week after week, adding cells to his spreadsheets, now adding asset classes, doing all this research to just, you know, keep on bolstering this initial rule of thumb. And, you know, it's gone from four to, I won't kind of spill all the beans and what we discovered in this episode, but it might be even higher than a 4% rule where, you know, if you are using the 4% rule as your benchmark for retirement, you might be fine bumping it up a little bit higher. I'm not going to say why exactly, but I just really enjoyed this episode and I thought Bill was a fascinating dude. What'd you think, Justin? Yeah, I thought it was an awesome episode. It was just an awesome opportunity to get to interview someone who created something that is, I mean, to me, one of the biggest cornerstones of this whole financial independence movement. Everyone talks about the 4% rule. Some people link it back to the Trinity study, but Bill's the originator. And, you know, he's open to other people trying to poke holes, like trying to offer up things that he hasn't looked into. And I think that's what's driving a lot of his newer research. He's like, okay, yeah, let's look at more asset classes. Let's look at different percentages. Let's, you know, really look through this lens of a very long retirement. And one interesting thing that Bill brought up also was how like our generation is more set up for early retirement and the fact that there seems to be more jobs where you can earn so much that it's like capable to retire really early, like these, you know, like 30 years old kind of retirements. And he said that honestly, that's what blew his mind more than anything is that there were people who were able to make enough money and save a high enough percentage to retire so early. Not that it, the math works or, you know, because he's got rock solid faith in that. And he also, you know, like talked about some of the things that you can't foresee that could make the math not work. But we certainly don't want to give away the whole episode here. If you ever want to go back, refer to some of the show notes, send a link to your friend. You can do that at thefyshow.com slash bill. That's thefyshow.com slash bill. I studied aerospace engineering, never practiced in that field. Then joined the family soft drink bottling operation, which was a great learning experience, great preparation for spreadsheet research, you know. And then I became a financial advisor uh, in the late 80s. In the early 90s, I started growing my practice, and I, I started getting clients who were of the age where they were starting to think of retirement. You know, it's 15, 20 years down the road. And they were asking me really two very important questions. They were saying, how much money do you think I need to have so I can withdraw? And then how much can I withdraw during retirement so I don't run out of money, you know? So... I started looking for answers to those questions. I dug through all my CFP material, all my CFA material. I looked through every book and finance I could find. I couldn't find a darn thing. So I said, no one's got an answer. I'm going to have to find this myself. So I sat down with my computer spreadsheet, a book of data, and just basically recreated the retirement investment experience of investors from 1926 up through the 2000s to see what happened to them when they withdrew at various rates. And that's where that came out of. So the overall study of this has always been like really cool to me for more than just like the, the early retirement thing, because I got to give a shout out. My girlfriend and her mom both actually graduated from Trinity University, which is where a lot of people hear this idea of the Trinity study, which I know is based on the same work. Did you have any actually connection to that group at Trinity? No, I think my work preceded theirs by about three, four years. I think I tried to contact them, but I wasn't successful, which I regret. I always like to talk to people in the field. You know, I learn a lot from them. So when you come out with this, you know, this kind of revolutionary idea that, you know, you need 4% to withdraw and 
you're probably going to be okay for the rest of your life. How was that idea received by the community? Like it sounded like, Bell, there was literally nothing out there even close to like that. Or were you hated? Were you revered? Or was it a mixture of both? Yeah, it was a mixture. <laughs> In certain quarters, I was hated. I got received a lot of nasty mail from people who said, who are you? I mean, you've been a financial advisor for two or three years. You went behind the ears. I've been doing this for 20 years. I've been telling my clients six or 7% is fine. Who are you to come in and tell my clients anything different? And my answer to that is, that's what my numbers show. That's my research shows. You know, Let me see your research. And of course, they didn't have any. They were basically going by rules of thumb. And understandable, because no one had done any you know, detailed analysis of this. Then there was a group of people, advisors, who were as hungry as I was for answers to these questions. And I provided them with something substantial, uh, something that was thoroughly backed by research, and they were thrilled with it. And they said, well, okay, we want to hear more. I mean, you only did tax-deferred accounts and, and for 30 years. What happens in 40 years? What happens with a taxable account? What happens in you know, all this? So that started me, you know, on years of research. <laughs> so you talked about the group who said, hey, we've been telling our clients six, seven percent. Was that kind of the norm before you came out with this study that most people actually recommended a more risky aggressive? Or was it was there a large number of people who were actually saying, no, like, don't go above two percent? Really with two schools of thought. One was the higher number, the six or seven percent, which is basically an extension of the portfolio that they had before retirement into retirement. And then there were the folks who said, oh, no, you're in retirement now. You, you must not invest. Get, sell all your stocks. Get out of them. Run. You know, do not walk to the exits. Buy bonds. Invest only in bonds. You can imagine what that would be like today if people had only bonds in their portfolio. Just losses uh, as far as the eye can see. But, yeah, there were two schools of thought. And basically what my research indicated, you need to have both. You need to have the uh, stocks to give your portfolio the zip you know, so you can take out substantial, and then you have to have the bonds in there to protect your portfolio when the stock market drops sharply and, you know, provide some income and, and some diversification. I did it by basically recreating the investment experience of people. Uh, I assume that people retired on the first day of each quarter from 1926, you know, to the most recent date I could use. And then I gave them various mixes of stocks and bonds. And the size of the portfolio didn't make any difference. You know, whether it was 100,000 or 100 million, it's a percentage. So it's, it's 4% of whatever you have. I came to the conclusion by looking at hundreds of retirement portfolios that October of 1968, the unlucky person who retired in that time ran into a barrage of two bear markets, one after the other, very start, which is the worst thing can happen to you at the start of retirement, to have a bear market. They had two, and there were two big ones. And then they got hit by uh, over a decade of high inflation, and high inflation forces you to increase your withdrawal rates, you know, because we're assuming we want to maintain our lifestyle, so we're going to increase each year an amount equal to inflation. The combination of those was devastating, and that's where the 4.5%, which actually 4.5% after my research in 2006, came out. That's what I call a worst case scenario in history. That was, you know, the most investors were able to take more. And I know when you were doing this research, like if you, the clients you were dealing with, they're all in the United States, but maybe originally or since then, have you done any investigation into how this rule holds up if you're looking for people in other countries, other markets? Because obviously this community has grown so big and now we have people from all over the world, different countries who don't necessarily have access to the U.S. stock market. 
Yeah, and they really deserve to have a good answer to that question. And I, unfortunately, I don't have a good answer. I've been the databases I work with are primarily U.S. based investments. I, I use some international stocks now, working that into the mix. But I don't have access to the information the returns folks get and and internationally. So I, I can't. I wish I could give them comfort. I know some of, some of my fellows, like Wade Fowle and a couple of others, have looked into this issue closely and felt that U.S. returns have been exceptionally high compared to that in other countries. So you can't expect to use a 4% rule. But I, I don't know. I haven't studied it. That's actually a good lead into another question I want to ask about. And I've seen you talk about Wade Fowle. I've seen you talk about Michael Kitsis. Who are some other figures in this community that have done things that you're either wowed you or you just saw them have a dramatic impact on the rest of the personal finance world? Yeah, well, those two guys' names stick out. Blanchett, David Blanchett has done a lot of work. Mike Fink has done some work. James Otar was another fellow. And I've never met the gentleman. I'd love to meet Otar because he published his own work and the results are very similar, you know which is good for both of us. <laughs> the numbers diverged on one of us was not going to be looking good. But yeah, there's a number of people. And I think that's great. I think that shows you how strong our profession is, how deep the talent bench is. I'm not the only one doing research. There's lots of others. And that's that's important. So this is just a little quick tidbit, but I know you said it right before we got started recording. When you're talking about the amount of research that's going into this, how many equations and cells are you talking about is in your spreadsheet that you're doing these math on? When I started this process about six months ago, I had a, a million and a quarter cells of data. Now I'm working on getting up to four and a half million. And the reason why is because I'm adding a lot of acid classes. I'm adding a lot more detailed analysis. A lot, I'm setting up things for an analyzing you know, tax consequences and so forth. And it's it's beautiful spreadsheet when you look at it. It's full of color and it's gorgeous, you know, but it's a, a monster, you know, to, to create. And hopefully when I work with it, it's easy to work with once you get things set up. Set up is where I've spent most of my time over the years, my research, and verifying, setting up and verifying. Because you don't want to have a wrong number in there and say, you know, oh, you can only take out two and a half percent. Sorry. <laughs> and that's had a wrong formula, you know, three years back. You got to get right. You just can't get it wrong. And my natural follow-up to that is how does that size compare? Like now you're talking about getting close to 4 million lines or, or cells. How does that compare to your original study? And then where are people going to get to consume this information when you finally do complete this, you know, the 4 million cells of data digging through it? Sure. My original spreadsheets, I think were just half a million to a million bytes, you know, a couple of megabytes. These are about 60 to 70 megabytes in size. You can see how much they've grown. I'm going to publish papers. And then I, you know, I, I did a book in 2006, but I've learned a lot since then. So I'm going to update that book, hopefully later this year, early next year, and reveal all the results I have, share everything I have with everybody so folks can use it, you know, to the fullest extent possible. One thing I'm curious about, and I'm sure there's been so many things that have changed from your original paper back in 94 to your second iteration in 2006. I mean, things are constantly changing. How do you think indexing, because there's just a madness towards index funds over the past couple of years, I mean, especially in the financial independence community, do you think indexing is bloating the stock market and bloating people's investment portfolios? Well, it's having an effect because... When a stock becomes big enough, it has to be included in the index, regardless of the merits of that particular stock. <laughs> you know, and I don't want to name any companies, but I think Warren Buffett once said, 
I wish everybody would index <laughs> because then he would sit there and cherry pick, you know, the best stocks. It's, it's caused some problems, but it's also given investors, a lot of investors access to re returns they may not have been able to achieve before. I mean, the market return over the long term has not been that bad. If you get 10% a year compounded in stocks, that's a pretty good return. There's very few places most investors can hope to earn those kind of returns. Uh, of course, going forward from here, whether we'll be able to achieve that for, <laughs> is questionable at these valuations. You know, it, it looks like it's going to be dicey for a while. And, you know, you're talking about how things could be dicey for a little while. And obviously, that's the biggest threat to a retiree is kind of what happens in those first few years, it seems like, when they retire, something bad going on. Doing your research, have you noticed things like this is what you would kind of recommend to help hedge against hitting a really rough patch in those first, you know, whatever it's three to five years? Well, it's always, it has been good in the past to have bonds in the portfolio, you know, to diversify. So if you get a big stock decline early in retirement, you know, the bonds are in there throwing out positive returns. I don't know how much they're going to be a help in this environment with, you know, almost every financial asset is overvalued. So it's really tough. Uh, I can say the old bromide, diversify, diversify, but, you know, when everything is overvalued, how much does diversification help? I think the one thing I would tell all investors that in retirement, your number one job is to protect your nest egg. Do not get hit with a 30% decline in your nest egg. Do what you have to do. And there are a lot of ways to do that. I guess, you know, raising cash, investing in areas of the market that are not so overvalued, you know, look for alternatives. But I, I think it's really important because if you lose that much in your nest egg and it doesn't come back right away, you could be facing a much reduced lifestyle. Tactically speaking, when you were practicing in your financial planning firm, would you recommend like someone getting what we'd call today side hustle or, you know, scale back to frugality? What were the actual tactical, tangible things you were telling your clients to do in the event that they retire in 2001? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, I, in 2008, let's say in a, a September of 2008, you know, when the stock market was down quite a bit, but was heading into a really rough period, I got my clients completely out of stocks. I didn't get them in as quickly as I should because I didn't have the methodology, the discipline available to me because basically our industry is based on buy and hold. So it's hard to find sources of information about risk management. I think there it's more prevalent. I think, you know, that needs to be looked in, but I should have gotten them back in sometime in March or April because stocks were cheap then, you know, and when things are cheap, you buy. And when things are very expensive, you know, you, you back off a little bit. I think it comes down to that, you know, as simple as that. You, you could be reasonably successful using that approach. But there are more sophisticated approaches that other people, you know, have developed and they're worth looking at, I think. How does inflation and interest rates and all of those things that have just been up and down and up and down over the past 30 years, how do those kind of factor into the equation, if at all? Yeah, inflation is something I worry about every day as a retiree. Most of the attention in the research has been focused on those early years of retirement and the performance of stocks. And we know that a bear market early in retirement is bad. But I have concluded that it's equally bad to have high inflation because if we want to increase our withdrawals with inflation each year to maintain our lifestyle and inflation is high, you know, 7, 8, 10% as it was in the 70s, then your withdrawals are growing dramatically. And worst of all, that's locked in. It's not like a, a stock market, bear market, which is, you know, you got a year, year and a half, it's bad, but it's over and it comes back. 
when you have to raise your withdrawals for inflation year after year and have no opportunity you know, to, to scale back on them, that's really scary. That does permanent damage to your retirement portfolio. And it's, it just frightens the heck out of me to hear in the news about various parties talking about we need higher inflation. Uh, you know, we need to get it up there a little bit. We got to get above our target here. No, guys, I'm happier. <laughs> Deflation is wonderful for retirees. I don't need inflation. Thank you very much. Well, you actually just said a word that I don't really ever hear talked about much, but one of you know one of the listeners when I'm asking for like questions people might be interested in actually brought up, and that is deflation. That might be a word that some people have never even like heard or studied before. Is that something that has come up in your studies, like thinking of you know things actually coming down, which you know might mean the company is not able to produce as much profit, which I guess could bring their you know stock prices down as well. You know, there's very few incidences of significant deflation in the last hundred or so years, largely, I think, because the central banks, you know, what the, the activities they've been doing, they don't like deflation, you know, because of the, the, the debt that the countries <laughs> they're part of, or they want to give them an opportunity to pay their debt back with cheaper dollars. So central banks and, and governments in general who borrow money like inflation, and, you know, they've been successful in doing that. Although 2008 was such a mess, we've been living pretty much in a close to a deflationary environment for the last 10 or 12 years. It's only through the most extreme efforts, I think, on monetary authorities that we've been having any inflation at all. One thing I'm curious about, and I know, Bill, you are the master of withdrawing, but let's talk about investing for a second. I've seen a lot of banter back and forth, dollar cost average, lump sum at the beginning of the year, all these different strategies for getting money into the market. Do you, have you done research or do you have opinions? And I'd, I'd love to hear and share what you can tell our audience. No, I haven't really looked about the accumulation phase that much. The only thing I looked at in the accumulation phase was what sort of uh, asset allocation you should have. And, and it turned out to be fairly, pretty darn aggressive in stocks, you know, until you get, you know, anywhere near retirement within five years. But I, I wish I had some better wisdom to offer you uh, on the other topics I don't <laughs> Well, as far as on that topic of asset allocation, you know, I've read a ton of different articles. And like you said, I mean, now with bonds being in kind of this weird place, like what role do they really play in the portfolio? And I know myself, like, which I, you know, I am on the younger side of things, but I'm looking at a very long retirement. You know, I'm up closer to that hundred percent stocks kind of thing. You know, when you're doing your research there, if you've got the stomach for it, like if you're okay with the ups and downs. What is, other than that, like, what do you see is like the big, I guess, trap for getting extremely high in your percentages of, of stocks? Is this uh, during retirement or are you talking about or before? So, so both, like if you're oh, doing okay. it during accumulation and you, and you hold on to that into, into retirement. I, I think you've got, if you have 20 years to retirement or more, you, there's not much risk in having hundred percent stocks in my opinion. You know, that's where you're going to get the best returns, the best growth. 20 years. I think the U.S. stock market has always shown a positive return, if I'm not mistaken. So if, if that's the case, why not? In retirement, you have to be careful because if you have too much in stocks, it actually dilutes your portfolio and reduces the withdrawal rate. And if you want to maximize withdrawal rate, then you want to stay away from 100% stocks. You want to stay kind of in the middle of 50 to 65% range, you know, which varies depending upon the market environment. I don't think I'd want to be 65, 70% stocks right now. That'd be pushing on a, a string there. 
So kind of on the same thread of portfolios and asset allocation, let's say we have a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, and an 80-year-old. They're all retiring this year. Okay. Are their portfolios going to be different if you were advising them? This is assuming they're all just hitting their non-earning stage at the same exact point, but obviously they're all drastically different in ages and have different retirement spans. Absolutely. The more time you have in retirement, you know, the lower the withdrawal rate will be. Four and a half percent represented the worst case for 30 years. I think for someone with like 50 or 60 years, I think it's four percent is probably the lowest I've come up with. It seems to just bottom at that, not get any worse than four. And as you age, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent all becomes possible. I think for an 80 year old, depending upon his life expectancy, that's the critical thing. If it's 10 years, probably eight, nine percent they could manage with the appropriate asset allocation. Can I make one quick point here? Yeah. Okay, because as I continue my research, I've been adding asset classes. You know, the 4.5% was based on just three asset classes, which was intermediate term government bonds, large company U.S. stocks, small company. I added three more because I want to check on the research done by uh, another person, Ryan McLean, who had very similar approach to mine. And he had recently been using a number of more asset classes to come up with close to 5%. And I think he's correct. I think that the 4.5% number would probably be closer to 5% as the worst case scenario with a well-diversified portfolio. And I even tried to optimize it, but it's going to be high fours, five. Given that, I still wouldn't go that high in this environment because we're in uncharted waters here. You know, with these very high market valuations and very low interest rates and all these concerns, maybe four and a half, I wouldn't recommend anybody do more than four and a half percent now. Treat this kind of like a, a new worst case scenario. But in the long term, in normal situations, five appears to be would have been the worst case scenario historically. I just want to get a quick definition before we move on, because you just mentioned well-diversified portfolio. What sure. does that mean to you exactly? It should be global should include various asset types such as uh, equities and various types of equities, small company, micro, large, medium size, so maybe some commodity exposure, precious metals exposure, bonds of various duration, bonds of various countries. I mean, I, I don't, there's probably a limit to when diversification will no longer contribute to the, the healthier portfolio, but it's probably better to be slightly over diversified than to be under diversified. I mean, I've seen in my research, I went from three to six asset classes, and I went from four and a half to 4.9 on the withdrawal rate. So there's benefits, and probably there's more, even more benefits out there with more classes. You mentioned this thought of us getting into kind of uncharted territories with the valuations of companies, the interest rates. And I assume that no matter which decade you jumped into, somebody would push back on information like this and say, well, yeah, but th this is different. We've never seen this before. Is that true, do you think? Do you think that the situation we're in right now is something we truly have never seen before? Or is that just always like a recency bias where people feel like that the situation they're in now is, is super unique? Well, it's in terms of valuations, yeah, I, I think it is kind of unique. I mean, we hit some high valuations in 2000, but a lot of it was concentrated in a small in tech stocks and so forth, large company stocks. There were pockets of the market like REITs and emerging markets and small caps in 2000 where you could invest in and get through that bear market pretty well. I don't see any place like that now. It's almost all overvalued. So it doesn't mean, though, that this situation is any worse than what we encountered 
that 1968 investor, because remember, he had not only had bear markets, which we're probably going to be facing down the road before too long, but he also had the very high inflation. And as long as inflation is not a big problem and stays at these levels, models I've run indicate this is not a worst scenario situation. It's not a worst case that the 70s will probably be still be the worst case. But if inflation picks up, all bets are off. So something we haven't really talked about, well, we, we've talked about it kind of from a 10,000 foot view, but how often do you recommend someone rebalances their portfolio or looks at their holdings? Because the market is constantly changing, inflation, returns, maybe deflation, who knows? But you know, how often should you be looking and re-diversifying that portfolio? You know, traditionally in our profession, you know, people use a one-year rebalancing period, I think, as an average. When I took a look at that back in 2006, and apply that to retirement portfolios, I was really surprised. It turns out that uh, when you let your rebalancing period go longer, three, four, five years, it actually raises the withdrawal rate significantly, like four or five percent. And I think why is because bull markets and stocks run four, five, six, seven years. And if you rebalance too soon, you're cutting off return. That would have added, you know, to the growth of your portfolio and increased your withdrawal rate. So my current opinion, yet to be verified by my new research, you know, is that longer rebalancing periods are probably better for retirees. It will increase their withdrawals. So one thing that gives me even more confidence about these, you know, the studies that you're doing is that as humans, the studies are just on a like, hey, set it and forget it. You're going to do this for 30 years. But we have the ability to put ourselves into the equation and make some adjustments. So when you're talking about a four or four and a half percent, are you recommending people sit down and say, hey, this was my net worth on day one. I'm going to do 4% inflation adjusted. Or do you recommend, you know, doing some type of like look at the market for that year or maybe like a trailing three years or something in order to adjust that percentage as you go? Or maybe some portions of time it gets higher, some portions of time it gets lower. What I've done in the last year, I've developed an approach which involves identifying for a retiree a comparable period in history with very similar stock market valuations and very similar inflation and having a 30-year chart of that period showing how the withdrawals grew and the portfolio grew and using it as a template, essentially, to monitor the performance of your real portfolio and each year compare, you know, how does my withdrawal rate compare to that portfolio of, let's say, it could be 1947 or 1962, whatever, and when things start getting out of whack, looking at it very carefully and determining whether or not a mid-course correction is required. And you, you, you're right. We have the flexibility. We don't have to stay in one mode for all of retirement if there's danger or opportunity. I mean, sometimes you'll find out you're doing much better than the template portfolio and you'll actually be able to increase your withdrawals. That's a nice you know, thing, scenario to consider, but uh, it's happened. And with that method that you're talking about where you're comparing a time similar to where we are now. Do you happen to know which point in history would be closest to where we are now? Oh, gosh. It's very, very different. As I said, it's almost unique because of the very high valuations. You only have the 2000 period, and the 2000 period was a bit higher inflation. It might be the closest would be the 2000 peak, market peak, you know? I don't know. We won't know for a number of years. <laughs> how different this period is you know that that's unfortunate nature we don't have a time machine to do that to be continued <laughs> yeah that's right 
Bill, I'm curious, actually, in your initial research, because it's honestly probably been most recently when people have actually started to rely more on their investment portfolios for retirement rather than their company's pension that they worked at for 40 years or a really generous social security. Did you include, like when you were working with clients, were you including those in your retirement calculations with them? And how did those kind of just factor into the general retirement equation? Okay, when I planned for retirement for a client, I, I, of course, did that. You had to take account of all their sources of cash. But my research is focused on a very, very narrow area. It's basically thinking of a retirement portfolio as a cow that has to last you full of retirement, and you're taking milk out of it you know, every year. How much milk can this cow give before it topples over and dies? You know, <laughs> you really want to know that. So it's a very narrow uh, because I felt that was important and hadn't been adequately looked at. And I'm I'm still researching and still learning new things. So you know, I think that's justified. So just to put like a pin on that, when you're doing that research and you're saying four and a half percent, that is exclusive of Social Security. So that is if so, even if Social Security did not exist, the four and a half percent rule you still stand behind. Yeah, my research is trying to answer the question, what is the most amount of money I can safely take out of my investment portfolio? I'm assuming that people want to optimize that. There's some people who are so wealthy, they don't care. They can get by 2% or 1%, you know, but most people need every single nickel they can get out of their investments. So I was trying to help them understand how much they can safely take out without risking their retirement. Something I've heard you talk about before, Bill, and let's see if you can just convince all our listeners who are there. Let's hear your thoughts on the one more year syndrome and how you can avoid that mental conundrum. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. You know, I used to tell a lot of folks I was going to be a, a practicing advisor and I would die with my boots on, so to speak. <laughs> you know, and then I had a grandson and uh, I was spending an awful lot of time, you know, finance advisors, the amount of time we spend just learning and, and researching and developing plans and keeping up with things is enormous. I decided that there are more important things in life than doing that 60 hours a week. <laughs> I want to change gears. So I think against the one more year, you have to set aside, you know, what am I giving up in the kinds of things that I want to do in life that I may never get to if it's one year every year. And I don't know if this is something you're comfortable answering, but what was your percent kind of safe withdrawal rate that you set up based on your nest egg when you actually did end up retiring? And maybe what age did you sort of retire? Yeah, I, I retired at age 66. I I heard some guy, Benjamin, was advocating four and a half percent. So I used that rate. <laughs> <laughs> Smart guy. <laughs> yeah. It's turned out, well, it's worked very well because if, if you look at my portfolio now, I haven't made any adjustments. I'm in because of the growth of the portfolio, which all investors over the last year and years have enjoyed, I'm at about three and a half percent, my actual effective withdrawal rate. So I've got a lot of room, you know, if things go bad to go back to four and a half percent and still be okay. Practicing what you preach. Yeah. You definitely have one of the best financial advisors to talk to, Bill. Just look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not always awake, though. <laughs> Who do you think needs a financial advisor, a financial planner, and who doesn't? Or is it everyone should have one? They check in once, even if it's once every five or 10 years to make sure they're on course. Or there's just some people that absolutely don't need to consult with someone for their financial stability. I really think it's important that everyone, no matter what level of finance they have, what level of wealth, there are folks you know with lower levels of wealth could do it on an hourly basis or occasional. But if you get a substantial amount of wealth, let's say a half million dollars or more, 
you need to talk to an advisor on a frequent basis because finance is a very complex area. As you know, the amount of time advisors spend taking courses and, and uh, talking to other advisors and learning and researching and keeping up with the news. And there's so many aspects of financial planning and it's constantly changing the state tax, you know, and investing and all kinds of things. I think it makes sense to be talking to a professional. I mean, you wouldn't try to necessarily manage your own health without the health of a doctor. This is every bit as complex as the human body. And what are your thoughts on the fee-based versus like a percentage-based thing? Because I know some people feel like they don't really want to do the financial advisor because they're just afraid. They're just kind of taking a percent off the top and, you know, worried about the, the value they're going to get back. But maybe they'd be more comfortable going to somebody who, you know, you pay a one-time fee for to get a look at their portfolio. Yeah, I guess it depends upon what you want to get out of the relationship. I think that you just have to get into a situation and evaluate what you're getting out of deciding if it's worth it. I mean, uh, I don't know how else you, you evaluate something like this. I think every compensation scheme, you know, has its merits, but whether it's right for you depends upon how you feel about it. You know, when you're, when you're in it, you know, you're getting all the attention you want. You're getting all your questions answered. What are some of those things when you first published the 1994 study that you look back, you know, 1994, Bill, what were you thinking? Well, to me, it was a great adventure. I'd stare at a screen with a spreadsheet. I'd be entering some numbers and I had no idea what was going to come out? I remember the first chart I created, the very first chart where I plotted the withdrawal rate against the percentage of stocks in the portfolio, like the bottom stocks, 10, 20, 30. And then I drew the curve showing the withdrawal rate. And I, I was stunned because I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I thought that it might go from lower left, upper right. Actually, it was like the hump of a camel where the middle ranges of stocks where essentially it gave you the same withdrawal rate, whether you're 40% or 50 or 60%, and then it fell off sharply on both sides. And that just blew me away. And it taught me that in this discipline, you can't assume anything. When you're doing the research, you have to let the numbers speak for themselves. And if something doesn't look right, it still may be right. You know, and it means you've learned something new. And that's why I continue the excitement of learning something new in this. How does it make you feel to know that there are just thousands of people out there who are in their maybe even 20s and 30s who are looking to retire because they have discovered this idea of like a 4% rule? And now they're about to, you know, kind of entrust the rest of, you know, maybe the next 60 years of retirement in this idea that they believe that enough research has been done and that this four, four and a half percent will work. And they're kind of marching off into this with, with a lot of confidence and, and they believe wholeheartedly that, hey, I'm going to be fine for 60 years. Like, how does that make you feel knowing there's like a 30-year-old out there who's about to walk away from a lucrative job because they know this information? Well, the numbers probably work for them if they've interpreted the number, if they've accumulated enough cash. Some, some of this is the FIRE group, I guess, referring to. The only thing I would love to talk to some of them about is why they're doing this. And what they expect to fill 40 or 50, 60 years with if, you know, what they're doing now doesn't satisfy them. I think that's the interesting question. I don't think the money, I'm as worried about the money issues as much as I am about, you know, their, their own issues, their sense of self-satisfaction and accomplishment in life. I don't see that talk about that much. We actually just recorded an episode like yesterday where Justin and I talked all about this and a lot of people will put their nose to the grindstone for 
seven years, say, in a really high paying corporate finance job where they're working 80, 100 hours a week. But then after that, like then they can find their passion job when they're 30. And using the 4% rule or 5% rule, now they can just kind of live paycheck to paycheck doing whatever the heck they want. So I think that's a, that's an ideology I'm, a lot of people in our community kind of have is they use the money to get to a point where then they can do whatever they want. Well, theoretically, it's possible. You know, whether it's desirable is up to the individual, I guess. <laughs> so like i mean i don't know maybe just taking this a step further like if you had a child or grandchild who was you know getting up you know maybe they're say they're like 30 years old they've they're kind of starting to hit that real increase in income they've got Mm -hmm. some stability but they look at their portfolio and they say hey i've got the four and a half percent i'm good you know what kind of things for someone like that at such a young age i mean do you think it's i guess are you thinking about it's more risky or less risky because on one hand yes they're retired for so much longer on the other hand their ability to jump back into the workforce is so much easier and less of a shock. Like it would obviously be a little tougher, maybe if you're in your late eighties to jump back into a job market, but you know, if they have to go back to work and they're 37 or whatever it is, like probably not the end of the world. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. The first thing I'd ask him is, can you give me a loan? The second thing is, I said, you know, if you got in your head, you have an idea what you want to do, and that thing is going to be satisfactory to you, and it's it's going to provide, you know, moral and intellectual nourishment, and you there are things you feel you can do that you couldn't do in a, a regular work environment. Well, give it a try. Why not? You know, like you said, they can always come back in. To me, it's astounding that there are opportunities in our economy for folks to accumulate that kind of money so quickly and then bounce out with it. It's That's something I think is a relatively recent development, isn't it? Uh, So I would think that uh, we don't have much history on how successful those people have been, right? It's it's a new phenomenon. It's very interesting. The technological age, the age of computers has certainly made it easier to scale money and reach millions of people. Whereas before you're, you know, you have a practice in town doing whatever and serving clients. You can't, you won't be able to serve clients in California if you have an office in Boston. It's definitely been crazy over the past 20 something years. Yeah. I have a lot of Bernie Madoff. He can do it from prison. (laughs) (laughs) And so Bill, the last thing I kind of wanted to ask about was, and and I know this is going to be tough as far as what you're maybe what your research would have dove into, but maybe it's just your personal opinion. We've talked a little bit about how as humans, like we have the ability to kind of change and adapt if things are getting out of whack, as far as, you know, if four and a half percent isn't working for them because of some unique market, maybe they can go up, maybe they can go down. But for a lot of people who are pulling the trigger and retiring really early, especially this fire community, as we're talking about, they're basing this on a very frugal lifestyle. Like they're basing this on living off $25,000 a year, maybe up to $40,000 a year, which means that there's not as much room to adjust down. Like they they can't really stop spending money as easily as if they would have retired thinking they were going to spend $80,000 a year. I I guess if you thought anything about that when you're doing your studies, as far as the risk of people who are retiring on the same percentages, but they just don't have a lot of room for variability because they're already on such meager rations. You know, I, I think in finance, as in most things in life, it's good to have a margin of error somewhere in your your, your process. I'd started that when my research, because I only had three asset classes, and I knew I was going to get a low number, 4%. That's four and a half, and then it became five. 
but what is the rule that's quoted today? It's the 4% rule, not the 4.5% rule or 5% rule. And I'm fine with that because I, I like to see people have margin of error because we never know what's coming down the track. I would encourage anybody who's doing engaging in a long-term effort like that, that they, like bridge builders, you know, they get build in a huge margin of error. So if you get a much heavier wind or an earthquake, you can still survive. Fantastic advice. Well, Bill, this has definitely been a treat. And I know you are prolific in the research arena. I actually read earlier today this thread on Reddit where you answered like 400 questions. <laughs> or, it was a, it was a crazy. I was like, does Bill really sitting here typing all of these answers? And there were like multiple paragraphs. So I know you are, you're truly about helping people. You are a man of research. You've bit, you've been in the numbers, you know the numbers, and you've definitely influenced myself, the whole community. Where can people find more about you, read about you, follow along with the research you're publishing, all that good stuff? LinkedIn, if they, they join that website, I, I periodically release new information through that. That's my primary source right now. And, and eventually, you know, I'll have an updated book. Uh, I sold out my my old book on Amazon.com, the last copy sold uh, just the other day. So uh, it'd be a little wait, but if they can wait a year for that, then that'll give a pretty comprehensive view of what I'm doing. Perfect. Well, Bill, thanks again so much for coming on the show. I know I'm super pumped to hear about you know this new book coming down the road. Can't wait to read that because so much has changed. I mean, since your last book, since 94, like this is always an evolving thing. And it's awesome to see that you are still such a student of the markets and of the math. So we're very lucky to have someone like you providing us with this information. And thank you for coming on the show today and giving us some of your time. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.